Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Vajrayana Part 2, The Radiance of Mind, by Lama Kathy Wesley. In this second installment, Lama Kathy picks up from her Vajrayana Part 1 talk about the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma and emphasizes tantric practices that deal with the mind and its natural radiant awareness, mantra practice, and mahamudra practice. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Lama Kathy uh, on behalf of the Columbus Karma Takes and Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. So um, I'd like to welcome everyone to our uh, Sunday morning Dharma talk and to uh, tell you our topic today is going to be the Vajrayana. I started this uh, talk uh, last month and I'm hoping to complete it today with this second part. Uh, the What I want to do is I'm using uh, this book, uh, as uh, Creation and Completion uh, by Jamgun Control. It's called ja Creation and Completion, the Principles of Tantric Meditation. And uh, I started working uh, from this book last time and uh, introducing the topic of the three yanas, the fact that the Buddha himself did not give specific lectures saying, today I'm talking about the Hinayana, today I'm talking about the Mahayana, and today I'm talking about the Vajrayana. He didn't do that. It, scholars later began to categorize his teachings so that we could get a sense of the um, of the depth and the breadth and the genius of the Buddhist teaching and to begin to know how we as individual practitioners can uh, apply ourselves to these practices. So, um, so we started last time by a discussion um, working from the... Um, the introduction to the book Creation and Completion by Lama Sarah Harding. We talked a little bit last time about the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma, that is how the Buddha's teaching progressed during the 45 years that he was teaching uh, in, uh, in India. And uh, he, taught in, he taught three distinct levels of understanding of the truth. As we all know, the word Dharma means truth. And, uh, and so he taught the truth from three different viewpoints. And uh, these we call these today, scholars call it the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma, because the idea of teaching the Dharma is turning the wheel of Dharma. And so um, that's um, why it gets that particular name, the idea that the wheel is is continuous and is always moving and so on, gives the idea that the truth is always true and that truth is always uh, moving us forward. So um, so in any case, um, in the first turning of the wheel, the Buddha described the, um, the, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. Now, if you remember, the Buddha said, my teaching, he said, is about how to bring an end to suffering for all beings and how, of course, then to attain Buddhahood or awakening. 
uh, for all beings. So um, the Buddha's teaching began with an explanation that suffering is part of life, suffering has a cause, suffering has a solution, and there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. So uh, suffering's part of life we get, suffering has a cause we're a little murky on because the Buddha said we suffer from confusion and delusion about the truth of suffering, the fact that it's part of our life, number one. And number two, where does it really come from? Where does suffering really come from? And the Buddha said that the, the suffering that we experience doesn't come from outside. It's not the boss. It's not the family. It's not the job. It is actually coming from our own clinging and fixation. So the Buddha identified the cause of suffering as not external things coming toward us, but our own internal reaction to our environment and our internal reaction to the things that arise for us in our everyday experience. So, um, so then it, that means that clinging is really the cause of suffering. And what do we cling to the most? The thing we cling to the most is our concept of self, me or I. And when we cling to the concept of me or I, then we tighten our grip on, uh, on what we think is reality, but is really impermanent, impermanence and interdependence. You see, this is sort of the secret part of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths is that they're predicated on two things. Everything is impermanent and always changing, and everything is interdependent and always in relationship. So if everything is impermanent and interdependent, that means that things are changing continuously from moment to moment, and our attempts to grasp things and hold them is, uh, I guess you could say it's going against reality, going against the nature of things, going against the way things are. So, uh, so, um, the, so then this understanding of grasping as being the root cause of our suffering, it's a, it's a big step for a lot of folks, but it, it's an important step to make. So um, in any case, um, I wanted to uh, start by talking about these uh, these four noble truths and describing them. So let's move on. If clinging is the cause of suffering, the solution is to let go, is to let go of clinging. And the fourth noble truth is the path. How do we learn how to let go of clinging? And so all of the Buddhist teachings, all the teachings the Buddha gave are about how to let go of grasping and clinging and how to let go of the causes of suffering. And so uh, that is what the Buddha taught in the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. In fact, in, the, in, the, uh, in her introductions, Lama Sarah Harding quotes uh, from Jangun Kantra, who then quoted from the Buddha himself, this first turning of the wheel of Dharma and the teachings on how to learn to let go of clinging are summarized in the four statements of the Buddha, doing no unvirtuous deed whatsoever, engaging in prolific virtuous activity, completely taming one's own mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So this is what the Buddha taught as the foundation for all of his teaching. We all have to do no harm to ourselves or to others, practice virtue, 
taking care of ourselves and benefiting others, and then taming the mind through the practice of meditation. And so all of the types of meditation that are taught in Buddhism, the quiet sitting meditation practice, the compassion practice that in Tibetan Buddhism we call sending and receiving or Tonglen, all of these practices, including the practice of mantra and visualization. Uh, I often use my props, my mala, mantra and visualization practice. All of these practices, quiet sitting, compassion meditation, and then mantra practice, they're all aimed at letting go of clinging in general, but self-clinging in particular. In the second turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Buddha, after having established uh, uh, the uh, the truth about suffering and its causes and encouraged us to let go of clinging. In the second turning of the wheel, uh, I'm sorry, in the first turning of the wheel, he said there is no solid, real, permanent, and unchanging self. And since there is no permanent, real, solid, and unchanging self, there's nothing to cling to externally or internally. In the second turning of the wheel, he established not just that all things, are our self-concept is impermanent, but also all things are impermanent and interdependent and changing and moving. And there is no, we. I'm going to make a joke and say there is no soul to objects. In other words, there's nothing permanent, unchanging, and solid about a table or a, de- or a, or a chair or this shrine or any of these things. All of these things have at their basis emptiness, interdependence, and impermanence. And this was the second teaching, uh, the second wheel turning of Buddha Shakyamuni. There's one, uh, just as there was like one little bit inside the first turning of the wheel that was important, inside this second turning of the wheel, there's something else that's very important. And those of you who are familiar with the Buddhist scripture, the Heart Sutra, are familiar with this idea. And that is that in the Heart Sutra, the Buddha Shakyamuni is sitting in meditation, very deep meditation on the nature of uh, of wisdom. And his Arhat disciple, Shariputra, and his Bodhisattva disciple, Chenrezig, engage in a conversation. Shariputra asked Chenrezig, how should a son or daughter of good family train in the perfection of wisdom? And being asked, Chenrezi responds that they see the emptiness of all phenomena. This is how a being can train in the perfection of wisdom, seeing that all things are empty of nature, meaning there's no such thing to tab- as tableness or doorness. There is just the objects coming together due to causes and conditions. And then Chenrezig utters those famous words, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. There is no other form than emptiness. There is no other emptiness than form. In other words, he says that all things have this nature. And so um, forms, feelings, sounds, sensations, and so on. All of these things have an empty nature. In the third turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Buddha went even further. Not only did he say the self was unestablished as being solid, real, permanent, and unchanging, that's first turning of the wheel. Not only did he say that phenomena is 
and not permanent solid, real and unchanging. That's the second turning. He said that this emptiness is empty of everything except Buddha nature. In other words, in the third turning of the wheel of Dharma, he taught Buddha nature. He taught that we all have a nature inside us that has the capacity to know itself. In other words, we all have a mind, and that mind has the capacity to know itself and to know itself completely. And this, uh, and they, he, in the scholars who've translated what the uh, the Buddhist teaching uh, is on this, has called it spontaneous presence. In other words, spontaneously present awareness that is not a permanent, real, and unchanging self. So in other words, the nature of all things is emptiness, but it's not a vacant emptiness. It's not a passive, vacant emptiness. It's a dynamic emptiness that is is, uh, the source of all experience and the source of all phenomena. So that's a capsule of what we talked about in episode one of this two episode series on the Vajrayana. So, uh, so now um, I, uh, I want to uh, continue uh, teaching about this by giving a, a capsule history of Buddhism in Tibet, because Lama Sarah Harding talks about how Buddhist Tantra developed, and she does so by describing the history She says that Buddhism in Tibet and the other Himalayan regions um, not only preserved all of these strands of Buddhism, the first turning of the wheel, the second turning of the wheel, the third turning of the wheel. um, It preserved all of these strands without, she says, denigration or contradiction, meaning they didn't get all mixed up. Tibetan Buddhism maintained a tradition uh, of actual practice that incorporated all of these three vehicles, the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, in an effective whole. And so um, the the Buddhism may have actually entered Tibet as early as the fifth century of the common era, that would be the 400s. But it was during the reign of several religious kings from the seventh to the ninth centuries, which would be the 600s to the 800s, that it became an established religion. Uh, The king, Tritsong Detsim, in the seventh century, invited the great scholar monk, uh, Shantarakshita, who founded the monastic lineage, and then the tantric master, Guru Rinpoche, or Padmasambhava, who brought the esoteric teachings of Buddhism and, uh, and was able to establish Buddhism in Tibet. The uh, first spreading of the Dharma in Tibet was established and and called uh, established the Nyingma N Y I N G M A or ancient school that continues today. After a dark period when an anti-Buddhist king Long Dharma suppressed Buddhism, the later spreading or the Sarma S A R M A tradition took place in the 11th century with a new influx of great teachers from India and new translations of sacred texts. Uh, Eight main practice lineages flourished as as well as many smaller ones. Of those, the four main schools, which are still well known today, were established. The Nyingma, which had been there earlier, the Kaju, which is our tradition from our center, the Sakya, and the Gelu. She says many great saints and scholars from these traditions have appeared continuously in the Himalayan region 
and have contributed richly to the great treasury of Buddhist teachings, knowledge, and practice. And, um, and it built on the great treasury of Buddhist literature that had been brought from India and translated into Tibetan. You have to remember, I believe we talked about this in episode one, um, in these early teachings, uh, early periods where Buddhism came to Tibet from India, the Tibetans took hold of as many threads of teaching as they possibly could. They took as many traditions, they took as many practices, and they kept them all distinct, and they didn't mix them up, and they they kept them going through lineages of teachers and disciples that come to, to, to our present day. And so this was very helpful when, in the 12th century, there was an invasion in India where Buddhism was virtually wiped out as part of the Mughal Empire. And so, as a result, uh, Tibet became, uh, I guess you could say, uh, an emergency shelter for Dharma for the period that, uh, that was the Mughal Empire in India. And from there, Dharma spread um, from many other places, from India. Dharma spread to many places. So uh, in any case, um, in terms of the practical application of the Buddhist teachings, uh, Jangan Kantrol, who wrote the book Creation and Completion that we're, I'm working from today, he, um, he classified these teachings into two, uh, the, the approach of, of sutra and the approach of mantra. Now, remember in episode one, I mentioned that the words mantra, tantra, and Vajrayana all are roughly equivalent. And that Vajrayana is called the indestructible vehicle because yana means vehicle, Vajra means indestructible. It was called the indestructible vehicle because all of the practices of Vajrayana deal with making, making us aware of the presence of our Buddha nature and helping us to nurture it to fruition our indestructible inner Buddha nature. So all of the practices of Vajrayana, mantra, and so on, have to do with recognizing our Buddha nature, nurturing it, and making it the, the what is it, our default mode, our, <laughs> the place uh, of, uh, of recognition, and so on, that where we understand the truth of the Dharma from within ourselves. So, um, the, this is why it's called the indestructible vehicle, because it deals with our indestructible Buddha nature. So uh, Lama Sarah says in her introduction, she says, sutra and mantra represent roughly the exoteric and esoteric approaches of Buddhism. Exoteric means what we do on the outside. Esoteric means what we do on the inside. The sutra approach encompasses the general methods and ideas expressed in the three turnings of the wheel of dharma and uh, and in this way in particular it is summarized by the four statements do no harm practice virtue tame your mind this is the teaching of the buddha that's pretty much the summary of the sutra approach but the approach of mantra uh, sometimes called secret mantra. And, and you remember from last time, the first episode, I talked about the fact that uh, the word secret kind of bugs me a little bit because it makes me think of like secret handshakes and uh, secret clubs and things like that. But really what it means is when he, he talks about the word secret mantra, he means the he's talking about dealing with our most inner, 
our most inner Buddha nature. So when uh, when Jamgun Control writes about the approach of mantra, he talks about the two stages of creation and completion. Uh, but to pr- try to practice those two uh, aspects of mantra practice, creation and completion, without first establishing ourselves in ethics and morality is to, as um, she says, uh, to make a mistake. She says, but to try to practice uh, uh, creation and completion without the ethical foundation and mental control gained through the sutra approach is considered useless at best. Jamgun Control advises us in this meditation guide uh, on ways to practice all of the characteristic methods of both the sutra and the, ta- and the tantra or mantra approaches. And so um, he talks about them in, from the standpoint uh, that we can use mantra practice to recognize our Buddha nature and to, uh, and to rest, and, rest in and realize, come to realization through our Buddha nature. So um, he says, um, uh, Lama Sarah says here that we can learn uh, how to deal with our mental afflictions through the uh, three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. From the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, we deal with our mental afflictions by distancing ourselves from them through ethics and morality. In the uh, in the Mahayana approach, we deal with our mental afflictions by transforming them into the seeds of virtue through the practice of lojong or mind training. In other words, when we feel anger, when we feel discouragement, when we feel uh, sadness, we look at those states of mind as being the potential for us to practice love and compassion and transformation, both for ourselves and others. Everyone is familiar with the seven-point mind training. Uh, Everyone who's familiar with um, Tibetan Buddhism will have heard some formulation of the seven-point mind training. And in the seven-point mind training, it encourages us to um, to use slogans to train our mind. And the particular slogan I'm thinking of is three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. What it's saying is that when we are unhappy, and, uh, and whether we're happy, unhappy, angry, or whatever, whatever emotion we're feeling, that we can use that emotion or feeling as the cause for accumulating virtue and creating a virtuous mind. Here's the example. If we're feeling impatient or unhappy, we can say, May my mental affliction of unhappiness or impatience contain all of the mental afflictions of all sentient beings. And by my doing this practice, taking on all of these mental afflictions for all beings, may I and all beings be free of these mental afflictions. And may we all become Buddhists in the future, which is the complete freedom from mental affliction. So um, that's the transformational aspect. It's not just restraining ourselves, which is what we do in the Hinayana tradition. We distance ourselves from mental afflictions. In the Mahayana tradition, we engage with them and transform them into the cause for um, accumulating merit and virtue. And then finally, recognition is is the third level of being able to work with mental afflictions, where we recognize the nature of the mental affliction is the same as the nature of mind. So, um, so in any case, um, 
want to mention this, uh, this approach. And Lama Sarah here is saying that rejection of, of afflictive emotion reinforces the attitude of renunciation that's so important in the first turning of the wheel teachings. The second turning of the wheel teachings are applied uh, to in transformation of so-called negative states uh, into conducive conditions or virtuous conditions on the spiritual path through meditations based on compassion and the realization of emptiness. But finally, recognition of one's own true nature, which is intrinsically pure and uh, pervasive, even within one's uh, afflictive emotions, uh, represents the idea of Buddha nature that's presented in the third turning of the wheel of, of the Dharma. The, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, this involves primarily uh, meditation uh, used on visualized forms representing the awakened mind, the uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and their mandalas. And so, um, and so the path of the Vajrayana, according to uh, the teachings of Tranga Rinpoche, is divided into two parts, the path of liberation and the path of skillful means. The path of liberation is the, um, is the, uh, is the practice of deep penetrating insight meditation, uh, insight into the into the nature of mind itself through meditation. And the practice that accomplishes this is called Mahamudra. This is the meditation that accomplishes it for us in our tradition. In, uh, in the Kaju tradition, Mahamudra is practiced by approaching a teacher, asking for instruction and receiving those instructions on how to meditate as mind, uh, with mind itself as the object. By allowing the mind to come to rest again and again in its own empty and luminous nature, one gradually becomes accustomed to experiencing mind as it is without all of the confusion and delusion. And through this continuous resting, the training and resting again and again and again. Through this training, one is able to experience mind as it genuinely is. Now, there's also the practice of that. That's the path of liberation. The path of skillful means includes the practices of yogic discipline, uh, such as Tibetan yoga and so on. But also it includes the practice of creation and completion or the practice of mantra and visualization. In uh, Lama, Lama Sering's explanation, she goes on to talk about the body, speech, and mind of the individual and how the creation phase of and completion phases of a mantra practice help us to purify our body, speech, and mind. Uh, in brief, we have a lot of fixation and grasping toward our physical body. We have a lot of fixation and grasping toward our speech. We have a lot of fixation and grasping toward our thoughts. And so the practices of, uh, of visualization and mantra allow us to set aside our mundane uh, concepts about our body, speech, and mind and replace them with, I guess, what we might call a better uh, a bigger, I call it a bigger, better duality. Uh, we visualize ourselves as a Buddha or Bodhisattva. Let's use Chenrezig or Tara as an example. Here's an image of white Tara behind me. And I have a picture of Chenrezig that I'm looking at right now. So we can, through the practices of creation, 
and completion create our experience of the world and transform our experience of the world into an experience of a world that's not made of solid objects, but a world that's made of light. And this world that's made of light is a pure realm, a pure world, and it generates a pure outlook in us. Imagining that we are in this pure realm, we imagine that we and the beings in the world with us are also Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who have manifested awakening. And we do this symbolically by imagining ourselves being made of light and having the appearance of the Buddha or Bodhisattva that we're practicing. And so um, we do this and as a way of counteracting our tendency to grasp and cling. So instead of clinging to the body, which we tend to look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, more gray hair. Uh, and we, we become uh, upset by our grasping toward our ideas of the body. We set aside that idea and then take on the body of the awakened ones, the body made of light that is uh, arrayed in silks and jewels and that are symbolic of all of the qualities of Buddhahood. Uh, Kemba Karthar Rinpoche said, when you see images like this one, he said, you receive the meaning of those images just through the iconography. The image itself, he says, conveys its meaning. So the silks and jewels are all about the richness and majesty and comfort of recognizing one's Buddha nature. So um, in any case, uh, wanted to talk a little bit about this creation phase. That's what happens. So those of you who attend Columbus Karma Takes Some Cholings uh, mantra practices online, uh, right now we're not in person, we're still online, but when you attend Tara practice or Medicine Buddha practice or Chenrezig practice, you are participating in a chant in which we're asked to visualize ourselves as a Buddha or Bodhisattva and to think that we have accomplished awakening in that moment. That's the creation phase. Instead of creating this world of confusion and delusion, we create a world that's sacred and enlightened. And what do we do at the end of, of such a meditation? We enter what's called the completion phase. In the completion phase, we recognize the emptiness of all things by dissolving all of the visualized realm, pure realm that we're in, all of the mandala of center and surrounding that surrounds us. And we even dissolve ourselves as the Buddha or Bodhisattva from the top to the middle and the bottom to the middle until everything that we have visualized completely and utterly disappears into emptiness. And then we rest momentarily in that emptiness as a way of training ourselves to rest the mind in its own nature. When we arise from that very brief meditation, we then re-visualize ourselves as the Buddha or Bodhisattva the practice. We re-visualize the realm we are in as a pure realm and so on. And by doing this practice for a few moments, we cultivate, foster, nurture the idea of the possibility of enlightenment for ourselves and the possibility for enlightenment for all beings. 
So um, I'm hoping that this, uh, this brief introduction to Vajrayana has helped a little bit for you to understand how it is that mantra and visualization practice became part of Tibetan Buddhism and how it's part of our practice today. If we look at all three yanas, we see that all three yanas help us to realize the truth of the nature of suffering, the truth of the nature of mind, the truth of the nature of everything. And through the practices of Hinayana, we improve what I like to call our karmic profile. We purify negative karma. We accumulate positive karma. In the Mahayana, we learn love and compassion for ourselves and for others. And in the Vajrayana, we make use of our mind's imaginative power to connect with our Buddha potential and to momentarily imagine that it is realized and active. We do this as a way of remembering again and again and again our basic nature. Because when we learn a mantra practice, we're asked to not leave it on the cushion when we get up and uh, take our retake our place in the world. We're told that we can at any moment stop and visualize ourselves as a Buddha or Bodhisattva with an illusory body made of light, benefiting beings like a Bodhisattva. I remember uh, having this funny realization after I learned this teaching about arising as a Buddha or Bodhisattva when you finish a practice like Tara or Chenrezig that I said, oh my gosh, I could be standing at the sink washing dishes and suddenly I can have boing, a Chenrezig moment and I can visualize myself momentarily washing the dishes as Chenrezig made of light to benefit all sentient beings. Being able to key in to our mind's nature, either through the practices of mantra or the practices, which is the path of skillful means, or keying into the nature of mind through the practice of the path of liberation, such as practices of Mahamudra and so on. Being able to key in momentarily to mind's nature and to learn how to sort of toggle into that state of mind and that understanding and that place of purity and that place of sacredness. Learning to do this again and again, to remember our nature again and again and again is a very powerful thing. So um, this is why I uh, was really delighted to uh, discover this lovely essay that Lama Sarah Harding wrote um, about Vajrayana and, uh, I, and share uh, some of this for you. Um, I think I'd like to read just one little portion of, the, uh, of, of her explanation. Um, Anyway, let, let's let me just start here. She's uh, she's talking about the um, our basic nature as being pure. Since every aspect of our basic nature is intrinsically pure, the path of Dharma can employ many any method to bring us back to our own nature. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas used in tantric practice are a manifestation of this pure nature. 
In one sense, they exist as a method to undermine our, I love her verb, her words, pathetic projection of ourselves and our universe as being flawed and a way of connecting with our true human and Buddha nature. At the same time, they are that nature due to the complex process involved in engendering and maintaining the sense of a substantial self and a substantial world around us, we have lost touch with our basic nature. I'd like to say that again. Due to the complex process involved in engendering and maintaining a sense of a substantial self. In other words, we, um, she's reminding us that this phony, fictitious sense of self takes a lot of effort and energy to maintain. I mean, how, I mean, you know, we're awful sometimes, aren't we? We, we remember all the people who have harmed us and we, we bear grudges and we seem to never forget who has caused us trouble and wait for our opportunity to seek revenge. I mean, it's terrible how we are as humans. Look at all the energy that's wasted doing that. Keeping grudges going, telling lies, and then keeping the lies going. I mean, it's exhausting. Anyway, so, so when people tell me, wow, mantra practice is really hard. Why does it have to be so hard? And then I think about, I think about what she said here. The complex process involved in engendering and maintaining a sense of a substantial self. We have lost touch. Because of that, we've lost touch. Now, here's the phrase I was hoping to share with you. This comes from the teaching. She's quoting the teachings of uh, Trangrabhacha here. It is often explained that the actual emptiness nature of mind, mind's actual empty nature, is misconstrued as a self. Once again, it is often explained that the actual emptiness nature of our mind is misconstrued as a self, while the clear or radiant aspect, the knowing aspect of the mind, the part of our mind that, where, that allows us to close our eyes and experience vividly something we saw in the past or vividly imagine something in the present or future, this is called mind's radiance or luminosity. Its emptiness is its not being established as a material thing, and its luminosity is its capacity for manifestation and experience. So let me say that sentence again. It's often explained that the actual emptiness nature of mind is misconstrued. We experience our thoughts. We experience all of these things, and we say, oh, that must be me. We misconstrue emptiness as a self, while the clear or radiant aspect is projected outward as the separate external world of others. As the, so we misconstrue emptiness as being a self, and we misconstrue the luminous aspect of mind as being a real external world that we have to engage with. Then she says, as the confusion proliferates, the concepts of, dualis, uh, of dualism, uh, feelings of attachment and aversion and consequent karmic actions and imprints become self-perpetuating. Incredibly wonderful brief statement of our situation. Thus, it is called cyclic existence, samsara, and it is, quote, characterized by the experience of suffering, to quote the Buddha. But the essential nature of emptiness and clarity has never for a moment been absent. In contemplative practice, we can watch this process in our minds moment by moment and recognize how 
through our thinking, we create our world. Then there is the possibility of creating it consciously. Now, because of the complications of our confusion, we visualize the world in ourselves as a mixture of bad and good, creating constant tension of dissatisfaction. But we could choose to regard it as continuously manifesting the basic purity of awareness and emptiness. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas we meditate upon represent an alternative reality that more precisely reflects the innate purity of our minds. In any case, we visualize and create a world with its beings. The tantric approach is to use whatever we have, whatever we do already, projection and so on, as the method. So we use this capacity for projection and creation, which is really the unimpeded radiance of mind, as the path for meditation, but with a radical shift. Instead of imperfect um, women and men, we have uh, pure beings uh, embodying Buddha qualities. Rather than run-down houses, our brilliant palaces with divine configurations. The whole sorry world, in fact, is a Buddha realm of magnificent glory manifesting as the mandala pattern of the enlightened mind. Emptiness and pure awareness allow us to do this. Um, I just think it's amazing. Uh, she then goes on to talk about how it may seem contrived. The activity of mantra meditation uh, may seem contrived, but she said it uh, it allows us to see the world differently. Then she goes on to make the example that Kempo Karthar Rinpoche himself used of a glass of water. Uh, to different beings, the water is is one you know is one thing, but it's different things to different people. To us, it's a beverage. To fish, it's an environment. To um, a dog with rabies, it's a source of fear. So we, he's she's essentially saying that because our perception defines our reality, if we can change our perception and make a new perception, create a new perception, then we can potentially change how we experience the world. So um, it's taught that the practice of visualizing Buddhas and Bodhisattvas plant the seed for later man manifestation in form bodies for the benefit of beings at the time of enlightenment. Uh, this means, Kempo Karthrimbache himself said this when he said, yes, it's great to meditate on the, um, on the, it's great to meditate on emptiness and awareness and, and, and so on. He said, but where is your benefit for beings in that? In mantra meditation, you visualize yourself as a Buddha or Bodhisattva and create the cause for appearing in that form later to benefit beings. Whereas when you meditate on emptiness, it's just meditating on emptiness. You're not forming a pattern for the future after you become enlightened. So uh, I guess you could say that I'm a fan of Vajrayana practice and I'm a fan of mantra meditation. And uh, I'm a fan of helping people understand and see uh, their Buddha nature and work with their Buddha nature. And so uh, that's why I wanted to present this, uh, this series of two talks on Vajrayana to show the potential we have as individuals and to show the uh, possibilities that uh, the Dharma offers us uh, to practice uh, all three of the yanas. In fact, um, I want to mention uh, that you, you, those of you who have heard me talk about the Columbus uh, Center, the Karma Takes Some Choling Center, will know that 
explaining the name explains what we do. Karma refers to the Karmakaju lineage, uh, the lineage of His Holiness Karmapa. That's our family name. But take sum means three vehicles. Tek is a vehicle, sum is three. And Chu Ling means the place of the Dharma. Chu is Dharma, Ling is place. So the place of the Buddhist teachings of the three vehicles. So all three of these vehicles, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, are all practiced at the Columbus KTC. We do quiet sitting meditation as our Hinayana practice. We do mind training and compassion meditation as our Mahayana practice. And we practice mantra and visualization as well as Mahamudra practice as our Vajrayana meditation. So uh, I think that's all I want to present for right this minute. Uh, and I want to thank everybody who tuned in today. I can see the chat and I'm going to scroll through quickly and see if there are any questions. Uh, just want to thank everybody for joining. I see, oh, hello, Karma Droma, uh, uh, Becky, Hilda, Amy, Jerry. Thank you so much for um, it. So uh, let's see what the question is. There's a question here I might be able to see. Nah, I won't be able to see the question, sadly. Oh, too bad. I won't be able to expand questions. Darn. Hello, Tom and Sarah, Steve. So um, I guess that's, uh, I don't, I'm not able to read Karmadroma's question. Um, but uh, if anybody has questions, you can type them in the chat and uh, either on YouTube or on Facebook. I can read the entire question on YouTube, but I can't read the entire question on Facebook. But uh, if there are no questions, oh, that's very funny. Somebody is uh, mentioning that uh, today, February 13th, 2022, is uh, the uh, the Super Bowl game. And and who are we rooting for? Hey, we uh, we root for good football here in, in, <laughs> in Ohio. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. There's the, there's the question. It was about an expansion of ethics and morality. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I couldn't read that question. So too bad. Well, um, well, we will have to, we'll have to, what is it? Take a rain check on that question. Well, then since we're uh, getting down toward the bottom of the hour, um, uh, I'd like to take this moment to just sit quietly and, uh, and, and meditate for just a second, reflecting on what we've come to understand about our Buddha nature. Um, just sit quietly for just a moment and reflect on the aspiration that we will find our Buddha nature. We will practice virtue, we'll refrain from non-virtue, and we'll tame our mind through meditation. Thanks to all of you. I really appreciate you joining and I uh, really appreciate uh, all of your thoughts. And I will be checking uh, the, the chat as soon as I finish here. I'll be checking the chat and answering questions on the Facebook chat and the YouTube chat if there are uh, uh, questions there. Okay, let's dedicate all the merit that we've accumulated through this program and dedicate it to all suffering beings and make this aspiration. Through this merit, may all achieve the omniscience of Buddhahood. May it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing. 
from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. All right. Thanks, everyone. Omane Pei Hong. Take good care, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.